On behalf of Pastor Mark Driscoll, we want to thank you for allowing us to bring you Jesus-centered Bible teaching. Like Pastor Mark always says, it's all about Jesus. To get all of Pastor Mark's sermons, blogs, books, and other content, please visit us at markdriscoll.org. There you can also sign up to receive additional free content from Pastor Mark and support this ministry with a gift of any amount. Thank you. Howdy, Pastor Mark Driscoll here with our study of Ecclesiastes. We're in part two on uh, meaningless life, where the world's wisest fool tells it like it is. Today we're in uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, and we're looking at Solomon's experiment in stuffing the pita of life. Um, let's start with a, a story. Seems like a good place to start. When I was a kid, went to public school. Uh, I remember recess. We played a lot of kickball, a lot of soccer. I don't know what you did. Uh, I remember there was a, a little season there where uh, the craze became juggling. For a while with my kids, it was kendamas and, and other things. Well, when I was a kid, I remember there was this one kid in our elementary school. We were pretty young, and he somehow taught himself how to juggle. And he got pretty good at it to where uh, he could juggle all kinds of stuff, and he could keep it up in the air for quite a bit of time. And he would practice, practice, practice diligently each recess. And after a while, kids started standing around watching him. That seemed to be interesting enough to garner a crowd. Well, as is often the case, um, a couple other kids thought it'd be good to turn it into a competition. Other kids are trying to teach themselves how to juggle. And next thing you know, after a while, we've got on our little playground, a bit of a competition. All the kids are trying to outdo one another, at least this small group of kids while the rest of us non-jugglers watched on. And uh, you could see that the kids were, were trying to keep as many things in the air as they possibly could. And over time, there were a few kids that really stood out. These were like our Michael Jordan of jugglers. These were the kids who really had the it factor when it came to juggling. And these kids could out-juggle all the other kids. So what would start as a little competition at the beginning of the recess by the end of the recess, it was usually down to two. Sometimes that third kid would sneak in, but those two kids would be trying to juggle one item more than the other and to hold everything in the air as long as possible. Well, after a while, the pressure started to get to these kids and these poor kids started cracking. Little midlife crisis right there on the playground. They just couldn't juggle anymore. Both kids at one point, our best two jugglers just they just hit their limits. And the one kid was probably a little better than the other kid. And sometimes he could keep things in the air a little bit longer, but they both had limitations. They both hit their wall. They both reached a point where they couldn't juggle any more items and they couldn't keep anything in the air any longer. And after a while, the crowd dissipated. We all went back to playing marbles or whatever it is we were doing, playing soccer, playing kickball, jumping rope, whatever the kids were doing in that day. Um, and I was thinking about it. A lot of us really are, are just like that. We're just overwhelmed jugglers, uh, just kind of held together by stress, caffeine, and fear. The, the, the horrific trinity of the overworked, underslept, stressed out, burned up world in which we live. And just like those kids were living under the duress of trying to keep everything in the air at the same time while everybody is watching and depending on them, uh, I'm guessing your life feels like that. For most people, it does. All of these relationships, all of these responsibilities, all of these obligations and duties and demands and drudgeries and devastations and it just seems like life keeps throwing things at you, one thing after another, after another, after another. And at some point, you, you reach your limitations. You, you cannot do anymore. You cannot manage anymore. You cannot handle anymore. You cannot keep up anymore. And, and things start to fall to the ground, and you start to fall to the ground. The way out sometimes is, is taking a break. Um, I've been meditating a little bit on Psalm 23, where it says, and he makes me lie down in green pastures. Sometimes God makes us sit down, makes us lie down. 
Um, sometimes we're wise enough to give ourselves a little bit of a break, time away, day off, silence, solitude, prayer, time with the Lord. In either event, whether it's a, a forced sabbatical or a, a chosen sabbatical, it's an opportunity to sit down and ask, what am I doing? Are the things I'm trying to juggle the things I'm supposed to be trying to juggle? Are there some things I just need to let fall to the ground? I can't, I can't juggle them anymore. Um, if I'm going to take on new responsibilities, what ones am I going to have to let go of? I can't just keep adding to my repertoire of things I can keep in the air. I, I have limitations. And, and sometimes there are these reflective moments where we can pull back and, and really stop working in our life and start working on it, stop being overwhelmed by it and start to ask questions regarding it. Well, here's the transition from recess to the Bible. Ecclesiastes is a book like that. Sip my iced tea. It's a book where <clears throat> Solomon pulls back and he examines his life. And he's like a mathematician that devotes their whole life to solving one problem or a scientist that devotes their life to making one discovery. He has enough time and energy and money. He's, he's the wealthiest man on earth. He's the wisest man on earth in that day. <clears throat> His history is salutary and second only to Jesus Christ insofar as wisdom goes. He's ruling and reigning in a period of 40 years of peace. So he doesn't have a lot of distractions. He has time to pull back and, and the outer life is sort of taken care of. So the inner life can be examined. And, and what he asks is, what's the meaning of life? What's the purpose of life? Why, why am I here? Um, and, and, and in some ways, he's, he's like the scientist who's running the experiment, and he's like the subject on whom the experiment is being tested. And the, the laboratory is the world, and in it, he avails himself to the menu of life. Everything and anything that we could conceive of that might make life enjoyable, meaningful, valuable, purposeful. And, and as he pulls back and he asks this question and he makes it his life's quest, it's one of the three, in my opinion, most important questions in the history of the world. I think life boils down to these three questions. Number one, the question of origins. Where do I come from? Number two, uh, the question of meaning. Why am I here? What is my purpose? What is the meaning of life? Number three, destiny. What happens after I die? Origins, where do I come from? Meaning, what is the purpose of my life? Destiny, where am I going after I die? I think those are the three most important questions we can ask, and they frame all of life. And so that first question on the question of origins, that's answered in Genesis, the first book of the Bible. The question of destiny, what happens after I die? Well, that's answered in Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And in the middle is Ecclesiastes, which answers the middle question. What's the meaning of life? What's the purpose of life? And, and these three questions all go together. And I think oftentimes we don't have an opportunity to sit down and really ask these questions and think about it. I think that the juggling of all of the roles, relationships, and responsibilities of life keep us so busy so distracted that we don't have time to really ask the big questions and frame what we're doing and why we're here. Um, and how you answer these three questions, it, it really sets up how you see your whole life. So for example, and, and the questions go together. So if you're an atheist, you say, well, um, where did I come from? Well, it didn't come from any loving, benevolent, creator, God, what happens when you die? Well, nothing. So the first and the third question really set up the second. Well, what is the meaning of life? Well, it's hard to squeeze meaning if you come from no one and you are going nowhere, uh, maybe you're here for nothing. Uh, if it's agnosticism, you don't know where you came from, you don't know where you're going, it makes sense that you wouldn't know what you're supposed to be doing. If your view is more Eastern and karmic, it's you come from your past life 
and you're trying to exit into your future life. So in the middle, you're trying to pay back your karmic debt by suffering and then also not adding through doing evil so that at some point you can reach your destiny of grand nothingness. And for the Christian, we know we come from God, we're going to God, and in the middle, the meaning of life is only found in relationship with God. And so what Solomon does, he tells us in Ecclesiastes 1, 12 and 13, he says, I, the teacher, was king of Israel and I lived in Jerusalem. So kind of like when you meet somebody for the second time and they're just trying to be polite and sort of make sure you didn't forget who they are, he reintroduces himself. And here's his life experiment. I devoted myself, he says, to search for understanding and to explore by wisdom everything being done under heaven. Okay. So he says, I gave my whole life to answering one question. What's the meaning of life? And, and he lays out the parameters for his research, and that is under heaven. And, and this is a phrase that appears under heaven, under the sun, uh, depending upon which English translation you prefer, about 29 times. Philosophers might call this empiricism. It means that we only use our five senses to draw from experiences on the earth. And so all you're able to gain your data from is what you uh, see, what you hear, what you touch, um, what you smell, what you taste. You just limit yourself to your, your senses. There's not that additional sense of faith. What we're talking about here is the natural world, not the supernatural world. We're talking about the natural world without any perspective or revelation or insight from the supernatural world. And so that's the, uh, the quest of the great King Solomon. And he pulls back from all of his life responsibilities, something that you and I, quite frankly, probably will never have the opportunity to do. You've got a job, you've got kids, you've got sick parents, you've got roles and responsibilities and duties and bills and obligations. Let's just be honest and say, we're not going to get an opportunity as Solomon did to have no financial obligations. I mean, the Bible seems to indicate that his, his personal staff was about 35,000 people. Um, so everything he could ever think of having done, he could delegate to somebody else. Okay. And and here's his sort of thesis statement. It really, um, it really is, at first, like getting shot in the soul. Here's what the guy says, Ecclesiastes 1, the second half of verse 13 through verse 15. I soon discovered, he said, it didn't take me very long, that God has dealt a tragic existence to the human race. I observed everything he says going on under the sun, and really, it is all meaningless, like chasing the wind. And, and he says, here's the problems. Number one, what is wrong cannot be made right. And number two, what is missing cannot be recovered. I don't know if you can get more discouraging than that. If you have somebody who's struggling and they're sad and discouraged and losing hope, you send them to the Bible. That, that might not be the place you send them. And I think it was Moby Dick said that Ecclesiastes is the most honest book that's ever been written. And it's, it's true. Pastors, ministry leaders, we get invited into the, some of the most significant moments of a person's life, the day they're born, the day they're saved and become a Christian, the day they're baptized, the day they're married. We go to their deathbed and we're there at the graveside for their funeral. We get a front row seat. And that front row seat includes getting to see other people who love these people on the dark, difficult, devastating days get shot in the soul. A pastor's there when a spouse says to someone, it's over, I give up. Or the doctor says, it's cancer, we've done all we can, say your goodbyes. If you've lived very long, you know that life is very hard. And sometimes the, the tragedy, the pain, the loss, the grief of life is such that it, it just squeezes 
the final vestiges of hope out of the soul. Have you been there? You don't know what to say. You don't know what to do. It feels hopeless. There's no way to fix it. And you just sit down and have a good cry. Jesus wept. The number one category of Psalms in the Bible are laments. That's all about crying, weeping. It's where the soul has been crushed and out of it pours tears. It's like a heart funeral. If you've ever been shot in the soul, then Ecclesiastes is for you. It's a book that deals with the pain and the complexity and the frustration of life here on earth under the sun. And most good movies and television shows, they, they sort of have a, a cliffhanger. You're wondering through the whole storyline, like what's the great twist at the end of the plot? What's the great conclusion at the end of the show? Well, Solomon just shows up, punches us right in the nose, tells us, the answer gives us his thesis statement right up front. He's like, it's all hopeless. That's what he's saying. When you hear words like tragic, meaningless, and cannot, that's pretty hopeless. But the truth is we've all felt that way, right? I mean, and here's the wisest mere mortal who's ever lived, who has no lack of resources and we would assume, we would hope that he would come to a better conclusion than we do on our darkest day. Amen? You wake up, you throw your hands in the sky, you just start crying and say, why do I even put my shoes on and leave the house? It's all a waste of time. It's all falling apart. Nothing's getting any better. It doesn't seem like anything I'm trying is working. I'm just going to sit here. I'm just going to sit here. I give up. I give in. I'm just going to cry and then I'm going to die because there's nothing more that I can try. You ever been there? And you'd hope that a guy with this much wisdom and this much insight and this many resources, that he would come to a more hopeful conclusion, that he would write a self-help bestseller book. I figured it out. Put down your despair and put on your dancing shoes. There's hope for everybody. No. That's what he says. Now, again, I want to remind you, this is the conclusion under the sun. This is the honest answer apart from God. And he says that trying to find meaning in life is like chasing the wind. Have you ever done that? Do you collect things? I, I have... Uh, I have people in my life that I love and they collect things. I have a daughter. Uh, she collects vintage lunch boxes and every day she likes to take a different vintage lunch box to school holding her lunch. I have sons who collect a lot of baseball cards. I, I collect books. Uh, my wife, Grace, when I met her, she collected fortune cookie um, sayings and statements. I know people who collect seashells and stamps and stickers. People collect all kinds of things. What do you collect? Let me ask you this. Have you ever met anybody with a win collection? Someone who ran around chasing various kinds of wind in various places, you know, grabbing it firmly with their open arms and maybe putting it in their pocket carefully so that they could take that particular unique wind home and add it to their vast wind collection? Solomon says, trying to make sense of your life apart from your God is just like that. It's like a guy who's trying to put together a magnificent wind collection. Solomon's using the analogy of well that, as well that uh, uh, what is wrong cannot be made right. What is missing cannot be recovered. Some translations, and let me say this, Bible translations are like ice cream. Uh, you may have a favorite flavor, um, but sometimes it's good to taste the other ones um, because it provides a nice variety. And so in, in other translations of Ecclesiastes, that same phrase is, uh, what is crooked cannot be made straight. 
That's what some of the translations say. And I was thinking about it. My dad, uh, he was a union drywaller, hung sheetrock to feed us five kids, of which I was the oldest, until literally he broke his back feeding his family. I love my dad, hardworking guy for sure. Uh, then my dad had to go back to college and get retrained because um, he couldn't go back to hanging sheetrock. Uh, he got a degree and he became a building inspector. And so my dad knows at the very least um, what buildings are worth fixing and what are total teardowns, okay? When you reach a building and you realize it's beyond repair, the foundation is destroyed, the roof is leaked, the walls are rotted, the termites have moved in, the electrical is going to kill somebody. The plumbing is clogged in broken pipes. At some point, a good contractor, a good building inspector will look at a home and say, you know, we, this is a fixer-upper, but we can do it. Other times I'll look at it and say, this is a total teardown. Here's what he says. The earth is a teardown. When he says, what is wrong cannot be made right. Uh, like I said, some of the translations will say, what is crooked cannot be straightened out. Here's what he's saying. The earth is a teardown. Sin has so infected and affected everything that there isn't, there isn't anywhere on the earth that is straightened out and unaffected and, and able to begin the rebuild project. He uses this analogy as well of uh, what is missing cannot be recovered. That's what Solomon says. Uh, the favorite women in my life, uh, my wife, my two daughters, my mother, my mother-in-law, uh, the women I love and enjoy the most, here's one thing they all have in common. They all like puzzles. I don't, I don't know about you. I don't know if you're a puzzle putter together. Or, I'm not. I, I don't don't really do a lot of puzzles. I don't have a lot of patience. But one thing I have observed by those that I love who do like puzzles is that it's really frustrating when you're trying to put a puzzle together only to find that a lot of the pieces are missing, especially the important pieces like the, the edge pieces. You ever done that? You ever tried to put a puzzle together and you work really hard and it takes a very long time and it's very frustrating. And then you finally realize, I don't have all the puzzles, pieces of the puzzle. And as a result, I'm never going to get this thing together. Here's what he says. Trying to put your life together is like that. That's what he's saying. Have you, have you tried to put your life together? It's impossible. I mean, you can get more organized and have priorities and get a life coach and have a plan and organize your time and weigh yourself every morning and be very efficient and drink wheatgrass and go to bed at night and try really hard to get your life together. Maybe get some storage closet organizers and systems. And I'm not saying you shouldn't, but what I'm saying is life never comes together. Pieces of the puzzle are always missing. I didn't know that. I didn't see that. I forgot that. That broke. They didn't follow through. And, and here's the deal. We all know this, right? We all know that life ain't working, but, but we can't accept it. So we try to get organized and focused and efficient, but all we get is disappointed, frustrated, and jaded. It just never comes together. And I know if you're listening to this, you're like, hey, I thought it was about good news. When do we get there? We'll get there at the end. Hang in there. But it's like we were made for a world that had it all together, right? Nothing was crooked. Everything was straightened out. It was all put together. It wasn't a teardown. You open the box and all the puzzle pieces are there and it all fits and it all sticks. It's like in our faint, distant, collective memory, there's some home we came from that we need to get back to and we're just not satisfied being here. Crooked, that's a good word. This is Solomon's way of saying that we and our world are cursed. This is his echo of Genesis 3, where our first parents committed the first human sin, and as a result, everyone and everything has been affected ever since. 
And if you've ever tried to get anything perfect, you'll quickly discover that you're cursed. That is because everything and everyone that is supposed to be under your dominion is rebellious and defiant and disobedient. If you don't believe me, go out and try and have a perfect garden if you're a gardener. It's impossible. No mechanic has a perfect car. You never get your car quite right. I got a brother who's a drag racer and he's always tearing his car apart and working on it because it's never quite right and something's always breaking. So no gardener has a perfect yard. No mechanic has a perfect car. No accountant has a perfect budget. Something always goes wrong. No athlete has a perfect game. No parent has a perfect child. No preacher has a perfect sermon. I, and I've got a German shepherd. I got to figure this out. I can't even get my dog who's supposed to be under my dominion and obeying my orders to stop digging holes in my yard big enough to hide a body in. I swear to you, the other day we're outside, I almost lost a kid. My German shepherd is quite a digger. I tell her not to dig. I show her how not to dig. I give her treats when she doesn't dig. She sees my displeasure when she digs. And you know what? When I'm not looking, she's digging. And so two words describe everyone and everything under the sun, cursed and crooked. Genesis 3 tells us that we're cursed, and here in Ecclesiastes 1, Solomon tells us that that's why everything is crooked. Something's gone terribly wrong. And no matter how many organizations we start, elections we hold, wars we fight, dollars we spend, attempts we make, protests we make, medications we prescribe, bad guys we lock up, or tears we shed, the world is a hopelessly crooked, cursed teardown. Everything on the earth is crooked. And this, this bugs us, so we want to we straighten it out. Okay, here's the problem. As if we didn't have enough problems, here's the big problem. Not only is everything on the earth crooked? Everyone on the earth is also crooked. So, so you could see where this is growing. You could see where this is going. There's not just a crooked world out there where crooked people in here, in the heart, in the soul, in the mind, in the will. And crooked people cannot straighten out a crooked world. It's like a contractor who has no level and no sense of dimension and all of their equilibrium and eyesight and vantage point is just horribly wrong walking in to try and straighten out a crooked building, well, there's no plumb line. There's nowhere to begin. And, and so for the idealists, for the leaders, especially those of you who are young, and now that I'm 44, I can say that those under 40 are young. That's the Bible's line. Usually in the Bible, when it says the young, it means those under 40. If you're young, this probably sounds all really fatal really fatal. And I'm just a guy sitting at home today who's got to go pick up his kids from school pretty soon, talking to his computer. But, but hear me in this. What happens is the idealists, especially the young, tend to think that the generation before them got it wrong and they will get it right. Right? That that our parents got it wrong, but we'll get it right. Um, our parents and our grandparents, they made the world crooked, but you're welcome, we're here, we're gonna straighten it all out, okay? And what Solomon says is what is, what, is, what is crooked cannot be straightened out. What he says is what is wrong cannot be made right. What is missing cannot be recovered. It's, it's chasing the wind, trying to fix this world is like building a wind collection. Your parents thought that their parents got it wrong. 
and their parents thought that their parents got it wrong, and their parents thought that their parents got it wrong. And you can go all the way back to the thud in Genesis 3, and every generation thinks that they're the generation of destiny to straighten out all that is made crooked, that they come with the pieces of the puzzle that have been missing all these years. And everybody's got a different plan, but nobody's got a better plan. Um, I, sometimes I like to watch uh, mixed martial arts, MMA. And uh, if you know anything about MMA, um, if you just want it to stop, let's say you're a participant, you're one of the athletes, one of the fighters, you tap out. So tapping out in MMA is just the way to quit, give up, give in, get it over with. And usually it's where somebody is injured or they're at a place where they're going to be injured. And so they tap out to make it stop. I'll never forget. There was a, I saw a clip of a guy. It was a, an MMA bout. Two fighters enter the cage, the octagon. And the referee says something to the effect of fight, you know, and usually they clap their hands together, and then it's supposed to commence the, the combat sport. Well, before there was any contact or any conflict, one of the guys just literally put his hand down on the ground and he tapped out. Before anything, first thing he did, just tapped out. He was done. He quit before he even started. I, I don't know what happened, but maybe the guy just knew it was hopeless. Maybe he just knew, I can't beat this guy, so I'm not going to let this guy beat me. I'll just tap out and walk away. Thank you very much. Here's what Solomon is saying. In the cage of life, it's better to tap out right now. You and I are heading in to fight a guy named Cursed Crooked. Nobody's ever beat that guy. Everybody's tried. Nobody's ever gotten close to a win. Nobody's going to beat the curse. Nobody's going to straighten out the crooked world. Now, this starts to lead us to Jesus. The, the whole point of the Bible is Jesus. Arguing with the religious leaders in his day. In John 5, Jesus says, You diligently search the scriptures, thinking that in them you'll find eternal life, but these are the scriptures that testify about me and you refuse to come to me and find life. I'm paraphrasing. What the Bible is saying here is that you can't beat the curse. You can't straighten out the crooked world because you're a cursed and crooked person. Me too. We all are. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one is righteous. No, not one. So, we need someone who is not crooked to get the rest of us all straightened out. And we need someone who's not crooked to get everything else straightened out too. Well, then the question is, where is this person in this cursed, crooked world? Well, the answer is nowhere. If everything and everyone is cursed and crooked, uh, the hero to save the day needs to come in from somewhere else. He ain't here. So our only hope is a person who is not crooked and not cursed to come down from above the sun and to come under the sun and to bring with them a way to straighten us out and to straighten everyone else out and to straighten everything else out and to bring with them a world that isn't cursed. And so again, the silhouette of Jesus shows up again here. I, I guess what I, what I explained previously was that like the, the gospels, these are biographies in the Bible about Jesus and they show Jesus as a portrait. Well, here in Ecclesiastes, we see Jesus in a silhouette. We see him by his absence, not his presence. We have to refocus our gaze and and we see him through the shadows and the darkness. It's so all of a sudden we start to get longings for Jesus and inklings of Jesus and, and, and someone from above the sun who isn't crooked needs to come down and bring a world that isn't cursed and get us and get everything straightened out. Well, Solomon continues his uh, experiment and 
he really devotes himself to what I call stuffing the pita of life. I'll read it to you, Ecclesiastes 1, 16 and 17. I said to myself, look, I am wiser than any of the kings who ruled in Jerusalem before me. I have greater wisdom and knowledge than any of them. So let's just say he's, he's both haughty and helpful. And this is a guy saying, I'm the smartest person who's ever lived. He says he's smarter than any of the kings before him. And that would include his own dad, David. So this is, let's just say that he didn't get a minor in humility in college. He says, look, I am wiser than any of the kings who ruled in Jerusalem before me. I have greater wisdom and knowledge than any of them. So, and here's his life experiment. So I set out to learn everything from wisdom to madness and folly. But... I learned firsthand that pursuing all this is like chasing the wind. Um, let me use an analogy. Uh, often playing on the television at my home are various cooking shows, not because I can cook, but because I love people and live with people who actually are really good cooks. I'm a horrible cook and I'm very good at going out to eat. My wife, however, is an extraordinary cook, and so is our oldest daughter. And uh, my two sons are actually getting pretty good. They're learning how to cook. Uh, me? Well, anything beyond toast and cereal is really a life hazard if I was involved. So we eat pretty good here, but it's not, it's not because of me. One thing I have discovered, though, and I, I ate one of these recently and was thinking about Ecclesiastes, have you seen a pita? Um, I really like a pita because I can't cook. But if, if a loaf of bread married a purse and they had a kid, it would be a pita. That's how I see it. And, and like a purse, you can stuff a lot of things into a pita. And like a loaf of bread, you can eat a pita. So I like a pita because I can't cook. But if a pita can hold almost anything and then you can eat it, it works for somebody with my skill set. So for the sake of Solomon's life experience and his life experiment, what he does, he kind of treats life like a pita. Now stick with me. Um, it's not a great analogy, but this is the best I got. He takes all the stuff, various things that people like and try to use and feast upon to satisfy that hunger for a meaningful life. And he, he, stuffs, he stuffs the pita of life with these various things. Um, and what, he, what he's assuming is that life doesn't have any intrinsic meaning. It's, it's empty like a pita and we need to stuff it full of things that we like and enjoy and see if that doesn't satisfy our hunger for meaning and make our life meaningful. And he groups them into two categories. And so uh, he calls them, quote unquote, wisdom pitas, uh, wisdom. And then he uses madness and folly. So these are two categories uh, of pitas. So first he says, uh, I tried wisdom. I'll, I'll read it for you here. Um, uh, I tried everything, he says, from wisdom, there's the first kind, to madness and folly. That's the second kind. Those are the two categories. So the wisdom pitas, think, uh, envision a refined gentleman in a tuxedo who acts like James Bond. You know, we're talking highbrow here. Uh, say this person drives a nice German car, drinks only the finest wine, loves classical music, watches opera and actually knows what's happening, um, likes going to plays, eats uh, really good fine beef, um, eats really good, amazing fresh seafood, reads detailed, difficult literature, a person who speaks numerous languages and is perfectly at home with a salad fork, okay? That kind of person, that, the highbrow variety. And he says, yeah, that, that, that didn't work. Um, it was like a wind collection. So then he says, well, I'll, I'll try the second category uh, of pitas. He calls them madness and folly. So if the first is the highbrow, this is the, this is the lowbrow. Any of you grow up lowbrow? 
Um, my relatives, uh, diesel mechanics, red potato farmers, uh, construction workers. Um, so envision a guy in a John Deere t-shirt uh, stained by a lot of ketchup who acts like Homer Simpson, uh, drives some rusted out Franken truck duct taped together from a variety of wrecked trucks that he has to push start every morning. Uh, a guy who drinks a lot of moonshine loves uh, the two categories of good music, both heavy and metal, uh, watches reality shows where guys with two first names, like Jim Bob, catch gators with their bare hands, uh, loves fireworks, eats a lot of Hot Pockets, reads nothing but the numbers on the side of a NASCAR vehicle, uh, needs a translator for the only language they sort of speak and have no idea what to do with the toothbrush. Okay, there's, there's the lowbrow. So Solomon says, I tried to take life and stuff it full of meaning like a pita, my analogy. And I tried highbrow and lowbrow. He says, I'm trying it all. And he says, it's all a meaningless mess. It doesn't make life meaningful, valuable, or purposeful. Why? I don't know. Just think about it for a minute. How many, how many of us have tried the same thing? You're like, well, I'm going to go shopping and buy things. Huh? That didn't work. I'm going to give all my stuff to the poor. That huh? didn't make me feel any better. I mean, maybe it helped them. Praise God for that. I'm going to eat food. I'm not going to eat that kind of food. I'm going to drink or not drink this, or I'm going to watch this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to go there. I'm going to meet them. I'm going to try that. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to read that. I'm going to experience that. I'm going to watch it. I'm going to, and after a while, you're like, I'm still not satisfied. It's just frustrating. What are we here for? And why is it that everything we try to make life meaningful just ends up being so meaningless. Have you felt this way? Well, there's a book of a Bible for you. There's a book of the Bible for you. And what he's saying is I'm smarter than you. And he's saying that to me too. He's smarter than all of us. Cause sometimes we think, well, that guy's not very smart. I, he doesn't understand if he was as smart as me to figure out a way to make life meaningful and stuff something in his pita that make it worth living. And he says, no, you're not smarter than me. And you can't think of something I haven't already tried twice. Here's what I think he's getting at. Everything he tried was done apart from God. In this way, there's a difference between stuff and satisfaction. And it doesn't matter what stuff you have, people, experiences, possessions, there's no satisfaction apart from God. There's no satisfaction apart from God. Uh, maybe an analogy will help. Uh, maybe you can hear my lovely wife and best friend of, golly, 27 years coming home and there goes the garage door. Maybe an analogy will help. I really love my wife. She is the greatest gift next to salvation that God has given me. I like her, I enjoy her, I adore her. I like being with her and making memories with her. And we've got five kids and I really love those five kids and I love being their dad. And I love making memories with them. Uh, sometimes the memories are really big, like take a big trip together as a family and make these amazing memories. And uh, sometimes it's the little things, just like sunny day, go for a walk, hold hands with your wife, my wife, uh, take the kids and go for a walk and just get ice cream cones. What makes each memory uh, special and satisfying and sacred is not as much about where we're going or what we're doing or what we have, but who we're with. You know what I'm talking about? If you're with somebody that loves you and you love them, each moment is infused with meaning that wouldn't be the same without them. 
Meaning, uh, if it's somebody that loves you and you love them, then going to the grocery store can be a lot of fun in a way that going on an exotic around the world trip wouldn't be if you were all by yourself. Because what makes things better is oftentimes who you're with. And it's interesting because the only two things, I was thinking about this, the only two things that we take to heaven with us, the kingdom of God, are people and memories. People and memories. And Jesus will wipe every tear from our eye. And I think that means he'll get rid of the bad memories, but the good memories we'll take with us. People and memories are with us forever in the presence of God. Can't take the stuff with you, but the people and the memories. And so I think those are the things that are most important people and the memories we make with them. And uh, what Solomon is saying is that without God, even the greatest things fail to satisfy. And with God, even the simplest things fully satisfy. Because the secret of life is that it's often less about what you have and where you go and more about who you're with comes down to relationships. Because in this, Solomon's gonna talk over and over and over, like I went here, I did this, I did that, I ate this, I ate that, I drank this, I drank that, I saw this, I saw that. He doesn't talk about anybody. He doesn't talk about any people. He doesn't say, and you know, my wife of 38 years, who is my dearest friend, held my hand and, and that made the day meaningful and valuable and purposeful. He doesn't say, and I was aware of the presence and the grace and the goodness of God in my life as I was experiencing whatever it is that he was enjoying in his life. And as a result, um, I felt that it was meaningful because it was something I was doing in relationship. He never says that. It's literally a, a godless life. It's a godless view of life. It's a life lived under the sun and apart from God. And and if that is what Solomon is saying, then his book is, it's, it's radical. It absolutely fits our modern malaise where we live in a land devoted to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, or at least we Americans do. And people are stressed and depressed. Why? Well, he says it right here in verse 18, Ecclesiastes 1.18. The greater my wisdom, the greater my grief. To increase knowledge only increases sorrow. Okay, again, this is under the sun, apart from God. Those are the parameters of his life experiment. I mean, if you've ever felt depressed, hopeless, utterly lost, broken, frustrated like somebody threw a brick at your head and you're woozy and dizzy, unsure where you are or what to do, then Ecclesiastes is the book for you. Maybe you felt guilty for feeling that way. I should have a more positive outlook. I should think happy thoughts. Maybe you shouldn't. See, our age has afforded us an opportunity to get more information than at any time in the history of the world. Like Solomon says though, the only problem is the more we know, the more we have to fear and grieve. I've got the Associated Press app on my phone and it alerts me when there's a big news story and it's never good. Today it was, I think four people shot. That was the latest. As a result, some people stopped watching the news or reading the news altogether because it's just a parade of brutal human suffering. Like he says, the more I know, the more I cry. This explains why the greatest poets and musicians of every generation seem to be the most haunted, struggling with depression, wanting sometimes to even take their own life because life under the sun is just grief and sorrow. Those are, those are, those are Solomon's words. Well, is there, is there any hope here? Is there any good news? Um, yeah. Let me say it this way. Old preachers 
long time ago, they were um, fond of a, an analogy of a knitting loom. My my mom likes to knit and sew, and, and so does my our oldest daughter. And so I'm not pretending to be some sort of knitting expert, but as I understand it, um, if you're looking at a loom, a knitting loom, what you see all depends from whether you're looking from above or below. If you look at a, a knitting loom from below, it's just a hopeless mess of knots and threads. It's basically chaos and disorder, to use the words of Solomon. It just all looks meaningless. Like this is just a mess. No pattern, no beauty, no order, no harmony, no design is involved whatsoever if you're peering under the loom. And what he's saying is that life under the sun is like life under the loom. Conversely, if you get above the loom and you look down, you don't look from below up, that's life under the sun. You look from above the loom, sort of the perspective that, that God has on life and the earth, well, everything changes. All of a sudden, if you're peering above the loom, a beautiful pattern emerges that is intricate and purposeful and designed by somebody who had an amazing idea to take all these disparate threads and pull them together into a wonderful tapestry. That's how God sees it. That's how God sees history. That's how God sees our lives. That's how God sees your life. And so for us to get that perspective, to see history under the sun and to see our lives under the sun in a cursed and crooked and fallen and broken teardown of a world, somebody has to come down from above the loom and they have to give us a greater view and they have to show us what it looks like from God's perspective. And again, there's the silhouette of Jesus. Jesus understood that this was in part his ministry saying of himself in Matthew 12, 42. Here's what Jesus says, you ready? Someone greater than Solomon is here. Solomon's whole life was an experiment to see if there was meaning in life and Jesus' whole experiment was to give life meaning. Solomon devoted his whole life to answering the question of the meaning of life and apart from God decided there was no meaning and Jesus comes down and gives his life to make our lives meaningful. He forgives us of sin. He gives us new life. He fills us with the Holy Spirit, the spirit of wisdom, that he connects us to the living God, that he gives us a peer, a glimpse above the loom to see what God might be doing in history in our life. And he promises that he'll straighten us out and he'll straighten others out and he'll straighten the world out and he'll bring the pieces that are missing and he'll usher in a kingdom that is not cursed and in it we'll live together as people who are no longer crooked. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you next time as we continue our study in Ecclesiastes. Meaningless life, the world's wisest fool tells it like it is.